Good morning, everyone. Great joy to be with you today at uh, Hamilton. Thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity uh, to be along here. It's a joy for Meg and me to be here. And thank you so much to Kenny and the band for leading us so wonderfully in the praise of the Lord Jesus so far already today. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. And as you do that, let me also thank the mission team here at Hamilton for so faithfully praying for us in the work of Christianity Explored Ministries. I can't tell you how much uh, we appreciate that as a family and as a ministry. It means the world to us. And uh, today's just a great opportunity to thank you and say that we thank the Lord for you and uh, your goodness and faithfulness in that way is much appreciated. Now, as has been said, we're continuing this series this morning, and uh, the section that's been given to me is Acts 2, 42 to 47. I just want to pick up at 37, if that's okay. Peter has been preaching the gospel on the day of Pentecost. He's been unfolding from the Old Testament the glories about the Lord Jesus. We've, we've, uh, they've heard the fulfillment of all of God's promises in Christ. They've heard it was an awesome word, and it had an awesome impact. Let's read from verse 37. Now, when they heard this, that's the crowd who were listening, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, or every day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God. And we thank him for it. If you're able, would you stand with me as we pray? It's good just to change position after being seated for a few moments before we hear God's word. So if you're able, just stand in your place. We're going to pray together and we'll sit and settle to hear God's word together. Our gracious Father, what a joy and privilege to be the people of the living God. And to be here this morning because of your son, the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. To know that you have poured your Holy Spirit out into our lives. Reassuring us that we are the children of God. We're more blessed than any material blessing in this world could ever bring us. We thank you for all that we've rejoiced in already this morning. As we've sung your praise. As we've been led in prayer. As we've been listening to this word to the boys and girls and the younger people. And Father, now as we come to think about this passage, as we put another level onto this series this morning, as we think more, as has been done already, about what it means to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in 2021 and going forward until Jesus comes, we ask you to do for us what you did in Jerusalem, to come again by the power of your Spirit, to speak to us in such a way that we know it's not 
Not Craig speaking, speaking, but it's the Lord speaking to our hearts, doing business with us, lifting us up, encouraging us, blessing us, challenging us, helping us. So we look to you now for that enablement that alone comes from you. And in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Great. Please take your seats and flick your Bibles open again to that passage in Acts chapter 2. Well, the news has been full of what's about to happen tonight in Wembley, but when we can get away from that, uh, there are some other things going on in the world. And we know that after 20 years of uh, costly investment in precious lives and billions of dollars invested in security of, for, for Afghanistan, as the U.S. plans its withdrawal, beginning on the, the 31st of August as we hear about it, the world waits to see what's going to happen in that country. We're waiting to see if the Afghan National Army can hold the line, or if, as already seems to be the case, the, the Taliban militia will simply sweep through the country again and bring more bedlam and havoc in American absence. And although the United States has promised continued support to Afghans and battled leaders, even American superpower is going to be significantly tested when physically absent from that country. It's very difficult, isn't it, to have, ab to have influence when you're physically absent. But isn't it amazing for us this morning as we turn back to Acts chapter 2 to be reminded that though the Lord Jesus is now physically absent from this planet and has been, of course, for more than 2,000 years, he is still on the march. He is still the king of creation. He is still head of the church. As you heard a couple of weeks ago when Bill was doing his part in this series. And that's really the opening message of Acts chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Just flick back to it for a moment. I'm not, not going to read it just now. We will read it later. But the whole idea is that Luke tells us here in verse 1 about his former book, his gospel, when he wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the implication of that is now that in his second book, he's writing about all that Jesus continues to do and teach. Even in his physical absence, as he advances his kingdom in this world. And we know the glories of the gospel, don't we? That he was born as a man and lived a sinless life, died on the cross to pay for the sin of those who would trust in him, rose from the dead, spent time with his people, and then ascended to mission control back to glory and is seated this morning at the right hand of his father. Job done. Amazing. And from glory, he made it possible for the rescue that he achieved by his death on the cross for his people. He made it possible for that to be actually, personally applied to our lives as he sent the Holy Spirit. And as we pick up today in verse 42 of Acts 2, the risen and ascended Lord Jesus has just signaled to the universe the fact that his physical absence from the planet was not going to be a problem to the growth of his kingdom. As the Holy Spirit came with stunning power on the 120 people who were told by the Lord Jesus to wait in Jerusalem until he came. And as they began to tell the gospel, we've just read that 3,000 people in one day were liberated from darkness and occupied by the same Spirit of the Lord Jesus. 
And he has been doing that every day, ever since. And if you're a believer this morning, then thousands of years after these events, you joined hundreds of millions whose lives are now Holy Spirit-occupied territory in this world. And today, across the nations, teeming thousands will pass from death to life, from the power of Satan to God, as they come to know our Savior, the Lord Jesus. So as the world waits to see what's going to happen in the physical absence of the United States from Afghanistan, there is no question about what is happening in the physical absence of the Lord Jesus from his world and from his church. He is the king of creation. He is. We're going to be thinking afresh about how the Lord Jesus does that. How does he run his church when he's not physically here? How does he reach his world when he's not physically here? And we're looking back to those earliest moments in the life of the New Testament church when believers first knew with wonderful certainty that they were in Christ because his spirit was in them. My brief in preparation for today was to identify four marks of a healthy church. A church is healthy only insofar as it's in step with the Holy Spirit. Only insofar as its members, all of them, are in step with the Holy Spirit. And as churches go, you couldn't find a healthier specimen than the church at Jerusalem ten minutes after the Holy Spirit had come and made his home within them in such awesome power. Now, it wasn't a picnic for them. They faced enormous challenges. 3,000 people had been convicted and convinced and cut to the heart by the preaching of the gospel. They responded, as we read, in repentance and faith. The Holy Spirit came upon them, as he does to everyone who turns to Christ. And they were baptized and added to the church. It was glorious, but just think about that for a moment. 3,000 baby Christians who knew zip. How do you begin? Where do you begin? to teach and train and correct and protect and feed and nourish that number. The 120 who'd been waiting in the Holy Spirit were now massively outweighed by this 3,000 who'd been added. Every one of them, every bit as much part of the church as anyone else indwelt by the Spirit of Christ belonging to him. But how do you handle that? I think it was a wonderful evangelistic pastoral nightmare. But we're able to read this history and see four signs of a healthy church because it was a spirit-filled church. Four markers of the Holy Spirit's work in them as he took care of things in and through his people. So four things for us to notice this morning from this text, and they're very obvious. Number one, he made them, the Holy Spirit made them a learning community. That's what made them healthy. Number one, the Holy Spirit made them a learning community. It's amazing as the Holy Spirit goes to work on this fledgling church without erasing any of the diversity of nationality and personality and experience and all that rich diversity that there is in any church family, without erasing that, 
The Holy Spirit unifies his people around some core practices. And this is the first. Verse 42, look at it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what I mean by the Holy Spirit made them a learning church. Now, when I think about that, it, it amazes me. I've really enjoyed preparing this because I've, I've seen fresh things in the text. I was just thinking this week about how remarkable it is that these believers had just received the Holy Spirit. They had known his power in them and among them. And yet, they did not dispense with human teachers. They didn't say, well, we can do without preaching. We've got the Holy Spirit now. Amazing. No, the Spirit in them drove them, notice, not to an individual mystical experience where they would get some idea of how God was going to lead them. No, that's not the direction the Holy Spirit sent them in. He sent them rather to the assembly of believers who learned the gospel of God from the apostles. So the mark of the church was that they were a learning community. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. This was the Holy Spirit appointed means by which they were going to hear God speak to them and direct their paths. Well, what was so special about the apostles? And the answer is that they were uniquely qualified and appointed by the Holy Spirit not only to preach the gospel, but we might say to formulate the gospel. Flick back to chapter 1. I would like you to look at these first two verses now. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, taken up after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, do you see the process? The Holy Spirit has authoritative truth for the church to hear and apply and be blessed by and grow in. But the way the Holy Spirit will communicate that to the church in the first instance in Acts 2 and in all ages is by the apostles whom Jesus had chosen. So the apostolic teaching to which they were devoted is the Spirit-enabled, authorized word of Christ. Maybe some of you have read letter Bibles Bibles that have the actual outspoken word of the Lord Jesus in red. Quite a helpful thing to have, as long as we don't attach more significance to them than any of the rest of it. It's all from Genesis to Revelation, the word of Christ. It's all the word of Christ, sometimes directly from his lips, sometimes from his prophets, sometimes from his apostles. The apostles were commanded, they were commissioned, they were led into all truth, as Jesus told them would happen, and then they began teaching the church. And then, of course, through time, the word increased and spread, as we read in the book of Acts, and churches were planted, and problems began to occur, as always happens. And the apostles began not only to, to preach, but they began to write letters to address specific challenges that churches faced. And that is the volume that we now call the New Testament. That's the primary means by which the Lord Jesus shepherds his flock today. And that's why a healthy church 
is a church where the word of God is open, not, not only just out of tradition, but out of a sense that this is, this is dynamite. This is how God is going to speak to his people. The thing that stands out to me in this arrangement is that wonderfully the, the church isn't left trying to figure out God's will by having kind of subjective thoughts. You know, Kenny had a thought coming down the road this morning and Nathan had a thought and Robbie had a thought and then the preacher turns up and he had a thought and trying to work out, well, was it just my thought or was it the Holy Spirit who was actually leading us in that direction? Can you imagine the chaos if that's, if that's how we were organized? That we had these thoughts and we were, we were kind of trying to be guided by this because we were pretty sure that was the Lord who popped that into our heads. How difficult that would be. No, we have a body of truth. It's not subjective, it's, it's objective, it's there. So when things pop into our head, we can, we can say, well, is that the kind of thing God the Holy Spirit would say? Is that the kind of thing that would be in line with the doctrine of the apostles, with their teaching? We have a body of truth, what Jude calls the truth once for all entrusted to the saints. It is objective, it is verifiable, and it's a glorious blessing to the people of God. Now you might wonder, well, how did anyone know who were the genuine apostles? that the Lord Jesus had chosen. I mean, anybody could have uh, battled into Jerusalem and said, I'm one of the apostles, I'm, I'm going to have a go now, I'm going to have a crack at this and explain to you what's going on. Anyone could have made that claim. But we find that just as the Lord Jesus had been attested, as chapter 2 verse 22 says, by God, shown to be able to speak with God's authority, so as you look down at verse 43 of our passage this morning, all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That's how you knew that they were the genuine article, that they were the ones the Lord Jesus had spoken, that they were the ones the Holy Spirit had instructed and given orders and commands to. As they did these wonders and signs, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that these men had the truth. And of course, that was the impact that their ministry had. The church devoted themselves, interestingly, not to the signs they did, but to the truth they taught. It's remarkable, isn't it? So every Christ-centered, gospel-hearted church is in this sense an apostolic church. Not that we have apostles today. But we have their teaching. The God breathed scriptures, which is why we read his word day by day for ourselves and in small groups, and why we gather to hear his word week by week in the gathering of the Lord's people on the Lord's day. And back to Acts 2 for a moment, just as we finish this little point. This is the longest point. We'll move quicker after this. It was through the apostolic preaching of Peter that most of them had been saved in chapter 2. That's why I wanted to read from verse 37, just to remind us of that amazingly powerful word that Peter brought and the effect that it had. Verse 37, when they heard this, that is, when they heard the apostolic teaching, they were cut to the heart 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the, the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Can you imagine them on their tiptoes in, in desperation to hear if there was any way for their sinful rebellion of which they were now convicted? Was there any way for that sinful rebellion against the Lord Jesus to be forgiven? Was there any way for them to be reconciled to God? That's what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. You're on tiptoe. Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Just as the original 120 had received the Holy Spirit, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Speaking to a vast crowd. You see, Peter had, in the teaching commanded him by the Holy Spirit, he had a complete solution to the problem. They wanted to know what they should do. He told them what they should do. And they did it. They turned to the Lord Jesus. And they knew the power of this teaching. They knew the joy of forgiveness. They knew the presence of the Holy Spirit and being reconciled to God. No wonder we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I mean, you're gonna, if you've had that, if, you've, if your life has been turned around by the proclamation of the gospel, you're going to want to hear more of that. So to me, it's the most obvious thing in the world that that was the sense in which they were devoted to it. And brothers and sisters, this morning, it can sound a bit dry. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. It can sound a wee bit staid. But this is the way in which we should be devoted to the apostles' teaching today. Not as though it's absent years ago and 2,000 miles away, but rather devoted in the sense that we are joyfully, thankfully hanging on every word that comes by the Holy Spirit from the apostolic record because we know that this is the very word of Christ. Not just to Corinth and Galatia and Colossia and Philippi as we saw this morning, but to HBC. This is the word of Christ for his people today. What a joy. It is the living and lasting word of God that sets us free and keeps us free. So being devoted to the apostles' teaching is an exciting and glorious, health-giving blessing to the church. And 20 centuries later, here we sit with the Spirit-inspired apostles teaching us from the word, the very word of God. So a healthy church is committed to what the Holy Spirit is committed to. So that we're not just doing our daily reading as a kind of tick box exercise. I have to check myself for that. Am I just ticking the box? Or am I really meeting with Jesus and hear him speak to me? And we're not just sitting through the Bible teaching on Sundays when we gather. Or having it on in the background as we finish a leisurely breakfast but not really paying attention to it. But are we devoted to it? Are we knowing that this is the means by which the Lord will speak to us today and every day until he comes again? What a responsibility on those who stand here to preach. What a responsibility to those who preach, not to bring their own ideas, their own convictions, no matter how deeply felt, but to do as Peter later wrote in his first letter, chapter 4, verse 11. He said, whoever speaks is to serve by speaking oracles of God, the very word of God. And that's what we have in the prophets of the Old Testament, the Gospels, and apostolic literature of the New Testament. And the church family holds the preachers accountable. We're not six feet above contradiction. 
The church family is to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 who received the word with all eagerness. But what did they do? They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. To make sure the bloke up the front was actually on track. Was actually saying what the word of God said. The apostle's teaching is the word of God. When his word is preached, his voice is heard. So there's the first thing. He made them a learning community. Secondly, he made them a sharing community. It's interesting, I think, to pick up the implied balances in this short passage. For instance, when the Spirit made them into a learning community, they didn't turn into argumentative theorists or ivory tower theologians. That can happen, can't it? Sometimes the people, tragically, who are most into Bible teaching and, uh, and doctrine can be ah, just awkward and difficult to live with. That's not what happened. Rather, a biblically informed mind resulted in a lovingly engaged heart. So back to verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. To the fellowship, to the, to the being together, literally. The apostles' teaching didn't produce experts and eggheads it produced deep empathy knowing what the Lord had done for them all knowing how precious they were in his sight knowing that he'd shed his blood to bring them into his family to make them his sons and daughters and so they were committed to each other and and notice as we go to verse 4 where Luke unpacks this a little bit Notice how it was their belief that drove their behavior. Verse 44, and all who believed, that's a reference back to the power of the apostolic teaching. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Here's Luke unpacking the meaning of fellowship. They instinctively wanted to be together as much as possible. It's quite a challenge for us, isn't it? The the, the instinct of the Holy Spirit was to in them was to be with others in whom the Holy Spirit was resident. But this wasn't just kind of ethereal, weird fellowship. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to to all as any had need. This wasn't a kind of commune. There was no pressure on anyone to sell everything they have in order to be initiated into the church. That's not how it happened. You were initiated into the church by repenting of your sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus by being baptized as a sign that you were in him, a sign that the Holy Spirit had moved into your life. That was initiation. They all had their own property and they could voluntarily retain it. As we read in chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira are challenged by the apostles, wasn't it yours to begin with? You could have sold it. You could have kept the money. There was no problem. You didn't need to lie about it. They could have retained it, or they could have sold it and shared it. And the story here in verse 45 is that they they did that willingly. Friends, isn't that that a beautiful picture of a joyful, supportive, supportive practical Christian love. Their devotion to the fellowship meant that they put priority on being together and doing life together. They wanted to meet up and they wanted to meet needs. Very practical. 
And I'm certain that that's happening in and among you here. I'm certain that people are moved and touched and are meeting needs and are helping one another and standing by one another in every possible way, including in material support. That's a great sign because it evidently means that they were no longer devoted to mere personal material accumulation. That's what the rest of the world is devoted to. But when the Holy Spirit moves in, mere personal accumulation of material goods is no longer the most exciting thing in the world. It's remarkable to see how soon this change came. Here's a group of people no longer out for themselves. They were looking out for each other. And this sense of fellowship, this sense of caring for one another, this practical outpouring of love is another crystal clear sign of the supernatural power of God's Holy Spirit in them. And it became a standard for believers. Listen to the Apostle John. Listen to his teaching. Later in 1 John 3, verse 16, he says this, By this we know love, that he, the Lord Jesus, laid down his life for us. There's belief. By this we know love, he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. There's behavior. You see, belief, behavior. By this we know love, he laid down his life for us. Therefore, we will lay down our lives for the brothers. What does it mean to lay down our lives, John? Well, verse 17. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? asks John. If I can close my heart to a brother and sister in Christ for whatever reason and not give it a thought, I'm in big trouble. An absence of this type of fellowship in a local church that sees and loves and joyfully shares and doesn't count the cost. An absence of that isn't just a sign of poor spiritual health. It's a sign of certain spiritual death, says John. If my heart is closed to the needs of others, if I'm closed to them in my heart, it's closed to the love of God. The reason I don't show his love is that I don't know his love, says John. So he goes on, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk. Let's not just write about it and talk about it, but in deed and in truth. And that's what happened in Acts 2. See, see the healthiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. The healthiness here is I get what Jesus has done for me. I know what he paid. And therefore, he who was rich for my sake and made himself poor that I through his poverty might be made rich. It's not going to be a problem for me if I can help. If I can stand by, if I can pray with, if I can give to a brother or a sister. And back in Acts 2, those hearts that had been cut open as they were convicted of their sin in verse 37 had now been cleansed and healed and they were now wide open to the Lord and to one another at the end of verse 46. So he made them, see if I can remember my own points, a learning community. He made them a sharing community. Number three, he made them a worshipping community. 
Again, see the balance. They, they didn't just gather to deal with material wants. Because I guess there's plenty church groups who just do that. All they'll do is care for people's material needs. That's not all they did. Not just gathering to deal with material wants, gathering to focus on spiritual worship. The Lord Jesus was central to all their gatherings. So let's go again to verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Verse 46 unpacks it a little more. Day by day, attending the temple together, probably for the prayers, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. You see, he made them a worshiping church, a place where there was praise and the breaking of bread and prayer, as well as the word. The reference to the breaking of bread there in verse 42 and verse 46 is quite interesting because it's impossible to make a distinction between them sharing an ordinary meal together or the Lord's Supper, which we'll do in a few minutes. And I'll leave to John McKinnon to sort that out next week. He's going to pick up on that next week. But the point is that the early church broke bread as they gathered for worship in remembrance of the Lord in the context of a larger meal, that, a meal setting that they were enjoying together. They broke bread together, brackets, remembered the Lord. As they broke bread together, brackets, shared a meal. And what strikes me is that they were maybe less inclined to compartmentalize their lives and separate the spiritual experience from the ordinary experience in the way that I can be. And maybe you can be. What I mean by compartmentalizing? Well, just the thought that comes into our minds, perhaps, that being conscious of the presence of the Lord Jesus might rather take the fun out of a relaxed enjoyment of a chicken jalfrezi with a few friends from the church on a Saturday night. So we'll kind of we'll kind of leave Jesus for Sunday morning. And we'll have a good time on Saturday night. We'll not think too much about him. We'll not be so conscious of his presence, although technically we know he's there. Because that's just kind of going to put a bit of a damper on the thing. But we'll be ready to pick it up again on Sunday morning. After all these years, I still find I'm very like that. But these guys in Acts 2 didn't seem to switch between being ordinary, which is not thinking about Jesus, and being spiritual, which is thinking about Jesus. The two things coincided because the Holy Spirit in them was constantly pointing them to the joy of their Savior at the right hand of the Father, knowing their minds, hearing their prayers, meeting their needs, cleansing their hearts. And that's what worship is. In the New Testament, worship is not confined to what we do when we come up that path and into this big hall on a Sunday morning. It's not confined to that. Certainly it's that. But it's more than singing and praying on Sundays and Wednesdays. Worship is giving to the Lord Jesus what we think he's worth. Over a chicken jalfrezi on a Saturday night. Or a korma if you're like me. 
It's the overflow of our whole lives. But at the same time as it's the overflow of our whole lives in ordinary situations and in formal situations like this as we gather, at the same time as that, somehow this mix of formal and informal being at the temple, being in the homes, somehow it didn't reduce the Lord Jesus and God our Father in their eyes to the status of just being a good and understanding mate who tags along. Because alongside the joy in their glad, generous hearts that we read of in verse 46, as they praised the Lord together, there was a foundational reverence. Notice that verse 43, awe, or literally fear, came upon every soul. So they weren't so chilled out about Jesus that no matter what the banter was or no matter what was being said and done and thought and processed, they didn't think about him. There was a sense of the glory of his joyful presence and all he'd done to bring them to the Father. But there was still a sense of awe and reverence. We must be talking here about emotionally engaged worship. They must have been feeling things. We're sometimes a bit freaked out by feelings. But they must have been feeling emotions as they got to know the Lord Jesus better, as he spoke to them through the apostles' teaching, as they had the joy of meeting one another's needs, as they were committed to the fellowship, as they met to break bread and to pray and to praise. And the primary emotion was reverential fear. And it's not this kind of fear, I don't know how God's going to be today, I don't know how he's going to react to me today. You can never tell with God what kind of mood he's got. No, it's not that. You can always tell with God. But rather this fear means that they take him with absolute seriousness. They were stunned by his reality. As we sang uh, wonderfully earlier on, that he leaves us breathless in awe and wonder. And I ask myself, and I ask you to ask yourself, is there that sense of awe? Does he leave you breathless in awe and wonder in your morning Bible reading? Or when you go to the small group, or when you meet, or you receive a text from another believer, or you gather here on the Lord's Day. They were stunned by his reality. What they were learning from the apostles surprised and thrilled, awed them. God's word spoke so deeply and relevantly to their lives that they rightly feared not taking him seriously. They rightly feared the sin that would so easily arise in their hearts and take them from him. I mentioned Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5. That's what happens when you stop fearing God. You lie to the Holy Spirit. So the fear of God is a very healthy thing. The fear of God brings us into the position where we don't fear anything or anyone else because we take him and his verdict of our lives with ultimate seriousness. So they were a worshipping community. Their worship consisted of these elements. They heard the Lord's word, the apostles' teaching. 
They proclaimed the Lord's death, the breaking of bread. They sought the Lord's help, the prayers. They praised the Lord's name in joyful awe. So along with the gladness and praise rising from their hearts in formal and informal settings, in the temple, in the homes, a sense of awe and glorious reality of the Lord our God prevented their worship from becoming casual and personally pleasing. Personally pleasing worship is a disaster. It's not good just if I like it. It's good if it's based on truth. It's good if it engages my spirit with the Holy Spirit. If I find myself reverencing the Lord in my heart and lifting him up in praise and prayer, changing my life, changing my thoughts, changing my reactions, that's worship. Number four, we're nearly done. He made them a learning community. He made them a sharing community. He made them a worshipping community. Holy Spirit made them a growing community. Now, this will be brief. A lot of ink has been spilt and words have been spoken on the issue of church growth. And you read Acts 2 and you say, well, what was the growth strategy for the Jerusalem church? Well, let's read it again. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and the prayers, all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the end of verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was the evangelistic strategy. There was the growth strategy. God did it. They got on with being submissive to the word and the work of his spirit. Devoted to these things we'll be looking at this morning. And God just made them a city set on a hill. And no doubt as they saw people saved, they began to ask God to do it again. And no doubt, as they saw people saved by the proclamation of the word, the preachers began to ask God to help them to do it better. And as Paul talks later about persuasively preaching, no doubt there, there developed gifting and ability about how we go about presenting the gospel in our culture. No doubt all these things are important. But fundamentally, it was the Lord who added to their number those who were being saved. What were they saved from? Well, two realities in this text. First of all, God saved them from God. His wrath is justly upon human sin, and the 3,000 were cut to the heart, convicted of their sin and where they stood before God. But already the word had rung out in chapter 2, verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so they called and God heard. They repented and they were baptized into the church, having been forgiven of their sin and received the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Lord has been doing every day since. So they were saved from God's wrath by God's grace. They were also saved from the blindness of the culture which remained and remains even today in obstinate rebellion against the Lord Jesus and rejection of the Lord Jesus. Flick back up to verse 39. 
where he says to the 3,000, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the reason, the reason they called to him is that he'd called to them. Glorious. And verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And you can see, can't you, why being in deep fellowship in the church was so absolutely essential for these young believers because they changed tribes. They used to be part of that spiritually crooked, twisted, unfaithful, Christ-rejecting culture. They were quite at home there. Now they weren't to be at home there. And so they needed another tribe and that's why the church needed to be together and to be loving and caring for one another and being fed on the word and remembering the Lord Jesus and worshipping and praising his name. And yet amazingly, that crooked generation isn't left to go to hell, if you'll pardon the expression. Because it was from that crooked generation, then and now, that the Lord is growing his church the physically absent Lord Jesus today will invade rebel territory in thousands of lives and bring them into his kingdom just as he did me, just as he did you if you belong to him. From this generation, from that generation, the Lord is growing his church gloriously at work. And that's what we've got to keep before us as we think about our strategy for church growth. All the danger of getting that wrong. All the danger, as someone have said, or, or, that someone has said, of turning God and His gospel into a product to be marketed to the world as our customer. Because if that's the mindset, what do we always know about the customer? The customer is always right, and you will always change your message to suit the customer catastrophic and where that has happened church growth has been like a firework it looks very impressive for a fleeting period and then nothing that's not where the power is there's no lasting power there only the Lord Jesus can make his church grow and when there is a church of his people who, as Kenny said this morning, are determined to have a passion for this vision, who are devoted to learning from the apostles' doctrine and sharing life and sharing burdens with the fellowship and worshipping the Lord Jesus in spirit and in truth with joyful reverence. He blesses that church and he makes it grow as he adds to their number those who are like us being saved. Let's pray together. So we ask, gracious Father, this morning, having looked at your word together, that you and your glorious power and love for your people would not let anything that is of, of you be stolen away. If there is anything that has been marginal and unhelpful, let it, let it blow. But what has been of you, 
for your people. Let it produce a harvest in our lives, in my life, in our lives, for the glory of our Saviour. Make us more excited about the Lord Jesus and about the gospel. And may this church family be thrilled to be healthy in step with the Spirit, committed to these things. We ask it for the glory of your name.